0: This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Adam Spencer is a true modern polymath. Best known for presenting a breakfast radio show for eight years, he is also a mass genius, an all round entertainer, and a bit of a nerd. So, Adam, before we get into the fight, yes. I need to ask you to tell me a little bit about your relationship with Dr. Carl. I first
1: saw Dr. Carl on stage at a university O-Week at the University of Sydney in the mid-1990s, and he was doing his sort of science stuff, and he was great, and he was starting to do more public talking about science. And I saw him one other time do a lecture in front of a group of students, and I very modestly suggested to him afterwards that uh, his content was fantastic, that there were possibly a couple of pointers he could take in how to actually fashion a story. And uh, so we... Uh, in Carl's words, he offered me $50 to help him out once, and that uh, linked us together for life. last money I ever got out of the guy. And we did a couple of... So he would we, he, we would talk at the University of Sydney. We'd give these lunchtime lectures, sort of three or four of them a year, called uh, under the branding of Sleek Geeks. And basically Carl would bring 95% of the scientific knowledge that ended up in the show to the table. I'd have a little bit in the mathematics, but the general science was all him... But I was the one who'd then go, okay, tell me the story. Yeah, okay, great, stop. No, 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 that's the funny, you put that at the end. That's what you're leading up to. That's even funnier if earlier you say this, that's boring. We don't, you don't they get rid of that. I think that's the way you tell that story. So when we were at our best, it was taking his phenomenal knowledge but channeling it into uh, telling those stories the most amusing and informative ways. And we took that on a national tour quite a few times uh, just playing university halls and things like that. Did a couple of TV series, um, all sorts of fun and goodness. He's he's one of Australia's rare, like a truly worldwide. Uh, you know, science communication's a big thing. He's as good as any science communicator in the world, and and just brilliant.
0: Such a wonderful story. So the reason I asked you that as the first mm. um, question is, I ask all my guests at the end the trick six question that's become less trick because everyone now yes. knows is who they would like to hear on Mm. Five My Life Next, Mm. and it was you. So Carl suggested me. Carl
1: suggested you, so you you better be good. Yeah, we're still looking after each other like that, (laughs) helping a brother out. (laughs) No, he's great, and Carl's great skill, I mean, I know know a lot of people who know one-tenth of what Carl does, tops, who won't admit there's a thing in the world they don't know. Carl's willingness just to go, great question. Don't know. We should have to find that out. We should probably ask an entomologist or whatever rather than just bullshitting on with an answer when he doesn't have the facts. His, his modesty around that is uh, incredible. But his hour on radio, I was listening to it the other day, his Triple J hour Thursdays, 11 till 12. That's, the, oh, that's probably the best hour on Australian radio and has been for 30 years. It's fantastic.
0: So when we get to the sixth question, you yeah. can't choose him because okay. I've, I've already done him. No trouble at all. So we're going to start with your film. Uh, I'm so pleased you chose this one, mate. So you chose the 1967 classic. Guess who's coming to dinner? Mm. What a film! I watched that again because oh. you you chose it. And the, just the presence on screen: mm. Sydney, Plattier, Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy. The cast. Wow. The cast
1: is incredible. For people who don't know it, it's a it's a a, a daughter and her boyfriend come back. To dinner, uh, first time they meet the uh, the boyfriend and find out Sydney Potter is a little bit on the black side for the dad's liking, and it just goes through all of that and the the you know the the challenges of the time. He'd already won Potter had already run the Academy Award for Best Picture, I'm pretty sure. Spencer Tracy has Oscars from years ago. The thing I love most about that movie are uh, is that that so Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn have had this incredible love affair decades, and uh, and when the film is being made, he's actually dying. He only lives like three weeks. He dies three weeks after they finish filming or something like that.
0: 14 days after. Yeah,
1: this. right. And so she, the, the studio didn't want to have him in it because he was probably going to die halfway through and they would just blow their money. So she underwrote with her own money the sort of insurance guarantee to have him in the film and it's their last great thing together, and there's that bit at the end where the old dad finally comes around to realising, oh, you know, I was, I got it wrong, it's just about you two, and he, he says this line, he says, it, and all that matters is love, and if, if you love and everything else doesn't amount to a hill of beans, and the camera cuts to Catherine Hepburn and she's bawling her eyes out because this is the man she's loved all her life who is, she would, she she'd bring him to work. The stories I've read, she'd bring him to that, and she would decide where the filming had to end, and they would shoot around his physical capacity to do it. And she knows he's got days to live. When he's just pouring out this thing that all that matters is love, and she's crying, and it's just the most.
0: And and it's so, it's so it's a bit like Twelve Angry Men that that film that the set pieces, his speech at the mm. end, yeah. It, it I mean that's 1960s America. Amazingly mm. evocative. And, and the story, I mean, I, I loved reading about their love affair and he never got divorced, but the wife knew and blah, blah. Mm. It, is she never watched that film? Mm. She she couldn't. And you oh. can imagine when you go, well, yeah. the man that you've loved for 30 years yeah. is dead. Yeah. And, and and I'm not going to watch the film because no. why would I?
1: Sending you this love letter from beyond the grave that you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you go back and watch just those scenes knowing what was happening yeah. at the time, it's just transporting.
0: No, no. One of the themes. In that film, obviously, is the per- the parental relationship, as mm-hmm. in what am I going to do? It's a mixed marriage, et cetera, et cetera, which, and the in-laws, leads me to ask, just because I've been researching you and I couldn't sure. find out much about this, is what, what's the gig with your parents? How did that... Well, tell me about your early childhood and...
1: Uh, so my uh, dad, Larry, and my mum, Elizabeth. And dad died in 2003, and mum's still kicking around uh, and we'll will bury us all. Uh, so they met. Dad was uh, mum had already been married when she was quite young, and in a, in a very, very unfortunate circumstance, in a horrible guy who she had the the courage uh, to leave uh, when it wasn't really the done thing. We're we talking domestic violence. Or, yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. And then, uh and then met my dad, and the story, uh, which may have, as we say in Common parlance, a little bit of mayonnaise on the top, but from what I understand, most of it is true. <laughs> that they, they meet and they, it's going great guns and Dad uh, asks Mum to marry him and she says no and it's eventually it's about the sixth time that he asks uh, before she finally relents and, you know, love of each other's lives and all that sort of stuff. But the story I've heard, and it might be a slight variant, but it's something along the lines of Dad's living in some big apartment block over in one of the beach suburbs, you know, Coogee or Bondi or something in Sydney, not when it was like Millionaire's Row now, but and uh, he goes downstairs in the apartment to visit another friend who lives in a different flat in the block, and he knocks on the door, and the door's opened by Hubba Hubba, and that turns the woman who's going to end up being my mum, and he's sort of flummoxed and chats a bit and then says to his other friend, you know, he asks her, who was that woman? And finds out a bit about her, uh, including that she works at the local library, and my dad, who I love him to death, but I never, I can't recall ever seeing my dad just curl up and read a book. He just wasn't a reader. <laughs> don't a tell me he went to guy. the library every day. Dad would go around <laughs> to the library and borrow a few books, uh, and knowing when she would be working there, and then bring them back a few days later, having clearly only read the little <laughs> blurb on the back. And he'd go, I don't know about you, but I thought this was a panoramic drama set against the backdrop <laughs> of the American Midwest and slide it back across the table. <laughs> and after weeks of doing this, finally uh, works up the courage to ask mum out. And mum, who's still you know, struggling, you know, post her previous relationships and all that sort of stuff, and flusters about and says, look, I can't, look, we, yeah, I, you I you really love it, but I mean, you live in the same, nah, look, I'm sorry, no. And according to the version I've heard, a couple of weeks later, mum gets a phone call, um, Elizabeth, it's Larry, I've moved to Coogee. Could we go out to dinner, please? So Dad moved house away so that he could, <laughs> so, that he could so that he could so that he could qualify to ask
0: Mum on a date. I love his moves.
1: I hate now. There's, there's certainly if 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 that is true, and there's any genetic component to being that sort of stylish and romantic, it skips a generation because I've never managed anything like that. <laughs> but if that's true, all power to you, Larry.
0: Great oh, effort. I love Great it. effort. So we're moving now from emotional fiction to mm. logical fact. Okay. For your book, you've chosen the 1997 book Fermat's Last oh. Theorem. Ooh. That Now, this is uh, based around a uh, mathematical theory first thought of in 1637 that took 385 years to prove. What took him so long?
1: <laughs> so uh, there's a famous mathematician, Pierre de Fermat, And he uh, scribbled in the margin of a book. So there was a, you'll remember from high school your right angle triangle. In a right angle triangle, 3 squared plus 4 squared equals 5 squared, for example. And you've got all these other right angle triangles. 5 squared plus 12 squared equals 13 squared. And there's an infinite number of examples where a whole number squared plus a whole number squared will equal another whole number squared. Fermat claimed that you will never have an example of something cubed. So multiplied three times. Now, two cubed is two times two times two. It's three twos. You'll never get two cubed plus seven cubed equals 11 cubed or five cubed plus 15 cubed equals 17 cubed. You'll never have an example of a cube plus a cube equals a cube or fourth powers, fifth powers, sixth powers, anything. He said squares are the only time it happens. No higher power. And he wrote this little... Reference in a little geometry book, I have a proof of this, but the margin of this page is too small to contain it. And left it there and off you go. And that became known as Fermat's Last Theorem. And it did. It took almost 400 years for it to be solved, uh, involving uh, m- multiple attempts over centuries, people thinking they'd got it, or money being put up as prizes. Uh, an English gentleman who finally thought he'd proved it and came out with this monstrously long... Actually, strictly a proof of something else, from which Fermat's Last Theorem would follow as an obvious triviality. So complicated a piece of mathematics that only a small number of people in the world were qualified to try and read it all and understand it. They appointed a little um, committee of people to read it and check, sort of go through it as a lecture series. And halfway through, the Japanese guy on the committee goes, "Hold it! Nah, that that line, that, that individual line. No, you can't. You can't justify that step." Um, so that oh that that could be a real problem actually, and it takes the English gentleman uh, Richard Wiles uh, almost goes mad in trying to then get around this little. bit. he just want completely cocoons himself off. Won't talk to anyone else about it at all. So he wants it to be his problem, his breakthrough. Finally, shares a little bit at a conference with a guy who says, oh, "I think we can help you." They get around it. Boom, and he's proven it. So it's so it's this amazing human battle against this beautiful problem that's monstrously hard to prove, but you can explain the problem to an eight-year-old. And there's a guy called Simon Singh, a famous English science writer who wrote the book Fermat's Last Theorem. And the reason I love the book so much is it's one of the best examples of the sort of stuff I try and do as well, but popular mathematics writing there is. You can give that book to someone who has no knowledge of mathematics beyond basic high school stuff. They can follow the human part of the story, and even the mathematics that he explains, you can follow reasonably well. And it's just a beautifully worked. It's three hundred pages long, all about the wrestling with this one problem over history. So it's 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 the single best piece of popular mathematics I think that's ever been written.
0: So you are being um, very humble because Numberland, you are you make the complex simple, mate. And I don't know how you do that. That's a gift. Very, very
1: sweet of you. It's it's it's. I don't know if I'm being modest because we write two very different types of books. So, so, and I have tremendous respect. So Simon wrote essentially on one topic there for hundreds of pages. My books fall into more of that. Um, one of your former guests, Dr. Carl, who I think you know, might have recommended me for the programs, type books of where it's just these, you know, little hailstorms of chunks of information coming. out. as Carl said, you write those books so that every individual piece, uh, no individual piece in the book runs longer than to read than the length of an average adult bowel movement because Carl thinks his books sit perfectly in the, in the littlest room in the house for people just to quickly grab and read a bit while they're going about their business is the way Carl structures his. So mine are more those sort of peppering with all different little bits of mathematics from everywhere. Simon's this one continuing gorgeous narrative. It's a novel. It's a novel about mathematical discovery.
0: So question. Mm. Do you think there is any way that your gift and talent for maths is a downside? To you personally, as in, I wish I wasn't so bloody bright at mass numbers, etc. Uh
1: yeah, no, I, don't, I, I won't comment on the brightness aspect of it, but cert- certainly, I see the world mathematically, and uh, there are times when that. Uh, I, I once uh, uh, a young woman was good enough to give me her phone number, and it had a string in the numbers at one stage of a. Uh, 171057. Blah 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 it's tucked away somewhere in this. It's either a mobile number or a work number, but 171057. To which I instantly said, That's fascinating, isn't it? Because three lots of 57 is 171. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she had a look on her face instantly of, uh, Really wish I hadn't given you my phone number. Still a good friend today. <laughs> I live at number 155 on my street. The first time I met the woman who lives next door at number 153. We'd been chatting for five minutes before I said, hey, about your house number, what's really cool is you take the the digits one, five, and three, cube them and add them together. One cube plus five cube plus three cubed is 153. The only other examples that happens for is three hundred and seven, uh, th- uh, th- 373, 371, and 407. Isn't that fascinating? Oh, look, there's the bus. Yeah, Got it, to go. <laughs> she's thinking, this, this guy's moving in next door. It was literally the first conversation we'd ever had the The main way it probably clogs me up is as a mathematician, i'm I'm always looking for the most what I perceive to be the most rational and efficient ways to get things done. The example I give is when like when when I when you're on an aircraft and you're sitting there, say in 14c and you watch the row in front of you, and there's a guy sitting in 13C, and then after a few minutes, someone comes and goes, oh, I'm in 13B. Oh, okay, we'll both get up, get out, boom, you sit in 13B, 13C gets out, sits back in 13C. A few minutes later, woman comes along in 13A. Oh, I'm in 13A. Oh, there you go. Up gets 13C, out gets 13B. She goes into 13A, 13B comes back. Everyone's just standing there, makes no sense. The only logical way to board aircraft is to say, okay, if you've got a window seat, everyone, hop on. Everyone else, chill out for a second. (laughs) We're not going anywhere without you. Don't panic. Okay, now if you're in the middle seats, on you go. Now aisle seats. Bang. Being yeah.
0: shown to load planes yeah. five to
1: 15 minutes faster.
0: We don't do it. No. So I, I find this Heckles. totally, totally fascinating. I, I, I give speeches and one of the points mm-hmm. I make in my speech to is to corporate audiences is the world isn't purely logical. Mm-hmm. Business isn't purely logical. Mm-hmm. Relationships aren't purely logical. Mm-hmm. The world is an emotional irrational place. Hopefully not 100%, yep. but it's probably 50-50. Yep. And it's it's interesting to hear. It's like, I wish I could unsee or not know things that yep. you know. Yep. Is I'm pleased that I can operate on a slightly stupider level because it, it probably makes my life slightly easier.
1: I, I accept that the world is a mixture of the both, but it would be better <laughs> if we just got as much <laughs> rational
0: in there <laughs> as possible.
1: It's, it's my whole passion for mathematics and writing about mathematics. You know, of all... <laughs> The, the essence of being human, what separates us from dogs and trees and things like that is to look at the world around and go, wow, fuck, wow what's going on here? Yeah. Right? And of all the different tools we have at our disposal, yeah, you know, art and and emotion and storytelling, you know, numbers are clearly the most powerful tool we have to look at the world, to try and explain it, to understand it, to predict it. I was looking at something just last night. We have in... Um, it's something in quantum physics. We've measured something in quantum physics. It's to do with electrons. That the, we when, when we do the maths on it and, and, and say this is what the value should be, and then when we use our devices and measure it, these things agree to one part in a trillion, right? Now, it's one in a trillion error. So the distance around the Earth is 40,000 kilometres. That's 40 million metres, that's four billion centimetres, and we need a thousand billion for a trillion, right? So that's one in 250. So one in 250 of a centimetre, one twenty-fifth of a millimetre. So our maths is so accurate in quantum physics in that case, it's like me saying to you, guess how far it is around the Earth, and you're out by
0: one- Twenty-fifth of a millimeter. Now I want to say, oh look, there's the bus.
1: That's, <laughs> but that is that's that's staggering. I know. Right. So the power
0: <laughs> that that rational thought yeah. and
1: mathematics gives to us is, I, I I just I find that stunning and compelling. And when people say to me, oh, but your you know, physics, physics, yeah. physics can't explain everything, mate. Yeah. Well, no, it can't. But now is clearly not the time to be getting off the physics bus. Oh, I love it. Because the physics bus is belting through town at the moment.
0: (laughs) I'm going to move you on to your... Which I think is quite relevant to where we're going to go. I'm going to move you on to your song. You've chosen... I love Kurt Vile. You've chosen Kurt Vile's 2013 song, Was All Talk. Mm -hmm. How good is Kurt Vile? Kurt
1: Vile's amazing.
0: So tell me about that choice, mate.
1: Okay, so Kurt Vile's... Was All Talk would represent three things to me, three different reasons why it's a significant song. Uh, number one, it's the type of, I, I'm, I have a pretty broad taste in music, but I have a particular fondness for your indie guitar dominated but not not really hardcore guitar sort of stuff. And the indie guitar in that and the sort of stuff like your Dandy Warhols and all is just totally. So
0: his album with Courtney Barnett. Yeah.
1: Oh. Totally my bread and butter. Just love it, right? Just, just love that. So, so the song itself is gorgeous. Uh, it represents great frustration to me because when I was working at 702 uh, in 2013, my final year, uh, and that thing lobbed on the desk and I was just so busy and so far behind and it was part of me deciding that, year this will probably do and all that. I was just getting disorganised and I then cleaned up all the stuff off the desk, took it all home And about three days after I'd finished on 702, listened to that song for the first time and just went, oh. Because one of the things I did on that show was play music that was on the envelope or well beyond what would normally be played on that station. And I loved taking the audience on that adventure. Played a great song once when MC Guru, who was part of Gangstar, had died and we played their hit Lovesick. And you couldn't script it, but this woman Beryl rang in and said, you know, how are you, Beryl, on line three? I'm good, thank you, Adam. That music you just played, that Sick Love, the love sequels, Beryl. Yes, yes. Was that was that an example of the hip-hop? It was indeed, Beryl, yes. <laughs> what did you think? Quite liked it. <laughs> Quite liked the hip-hop. I should probably listen to a bit more. And I said, well, you should be careful where you start with hip-hop, Beryl, but lovely <laughs> to speak to you. used to love doing this, and I'm so frustrated I didn't play Kurt Violet at some stage yeah. to the 702 audience. And then uh, a, a couple of years after that, when my marriage ends, the one thing I do with song, I'm, I'm part of the OCD, if, if I like a song, I've got no trouble listening to it 25 times in a row. But songs that I really like, especially when I first hear them, I'll just lock it on repeat on, on the app and just go. And if, if a song can really emotionally connect with me, I might need to listen to it 30 times before I go, okay, I can probably give that a rest now. And I can remember taking long walks on a beach not far from where where I live when my marriage had ended uh, uh trying to process it and trying to deal with you know all sorts of issues and that was one of a few that was one of my more, my more uh pleasant uplifting songs that I would just listen to on a loop just for an hour to with... help help you get through it yeah yeah there, there, there were a couple of you know other other people involved uh in my marriage ending on and it was you know here to uh their side of it, so I won't go into any detail. But uh, there were issues where I felt, you know, I felt, you know, confused and let down and, and 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 upset and wanting answers to things and all that that I, like, I found I couldn't get. And so there were a couple of slightly you know, angry is not quite the world, but there, there were some songs that spoke to my sense of being wronged mm. and uh, and that was more just a that was more just a pleasant look. Everything everything's going to eventually be all right. Just you know, you're just right. These these things will ride themselves out. Sort of song because it's beautiful and long. It's about seven minutes forty long. I love songs of that length. And There's just this hypnotic bit at the end of the guitar, just repeating and repeating, and little bits of it getting slowly louder and louder. And I love, I love a lot of the songs. I really love are quite long, or most songs that I love, I think would be better if they. Golden Brown by the Stranglers. That bit at the end should just go for six minutes. That song should be eight or nine minutes. It's about heroin addiction, for God's sake. That should go for a long. Time. The fact that that song was only three minutes ten long makes, you know, if makes I makes no sense. If I was good enough to write the the rational version of that yeah. song, it should you know just and so that song yeah perfect length and I just
0: yeah love it and and the marriage do do you think that was always uh, heading for for Gonski or are there regrets or or lessons or where where and what happened there
1: uh yeah yeah there so a great sense of confusion because of my partners behalf, it was always moving in a certain direction that I, you know, genuinely didn't know that was the case, which opens the instant question of, you know, was I not listening, or was, uh, were we not communicating enough, or was she not uh, talking as much as she? felt she was or, you know, claimed afterwards to have. So that sort of stuff's all... Or were you running the numbers when she <laughs> yeah, was exactly. giving you hints? Exactly. I had stats, I had <laughs> spreadsheets, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> uh, Venn diagrams that didn't overlap. Um, yeah, so those things, are, you know, um I, I certainly when we separated, I was uh, completely taken by surprise uh, and she was surprised that I was so surprised. Now, there's a lot of different reasons that can happened. And one, one of the things that this, the whole process taught me more starkly than anything I'd ever seen before in my life, that two people can, can go through exactly the same set of experiences and have two completely different interpretations uh, of them. And it's also shown me how, uh, you know, the bonds of family and friendship are stuff uh, 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 are such that the that there are a lot of things that can't be resolved with, like there's, yeah, understandably, my ex-wife's family take her side entirely in all of this, and as you would expect, they would, but there's almost no point trying to have, you know, in inverted commas, rational conversations with them about some of the things because they're just not, and that's fine, and that doesn't mean I'm right and they're wrong or the, the other way around. But it, it just taught me some of those
0: sort of, you know, truths about things. But but a enormous success in the fact that you produced two wonderful children.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. I did my bit there, but I'm happy to admit that my ex-wife did the vast bulk of the heavy lifting there. No, yeah, yeah. we've got two uh, gorgeous girls, and they're, they've tried to be as much as possible the centre of everything uh, that we've done since, and I think we've done a reasonably good job on that. Yeah. Just got back from Splendour in the Grass uh, with
0: my older daughter. Oh, you're an embarrassing dad. Do well, you, are well, you, uh, well,
1: it's funny because so I, there, there's a science and culture little sideshow tents there where we do so. And I got invited to do some stuff there for the first time, which was wonderful, uh, which gave me a sort of artist's pass. So I took Ellie along as a guest and we got to, you know, go to some of the areas where you could get a beer without having to queue up and all that sort of stuff. And some of the musicians are there. And we had a wonderful moment where we uh, bumped into, uh, I I won't name who, but one of the the major acts at Splendour was there. And my daughter and a mate she'd made are looking over at this guy saying, oh, dad, that's X. And I'm going, oh, we've spoken about this. Be polite. As long as you accept they have the right to say, no, you can't have a photo, you have the right to ask. You just ask once and try and personalise it and say, I really like this. And saying, oh, no, we can't. It's it's X. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. X has been doing his stuff for almost 20 years. So when, and X is Australian. So when X started, uh, my breakfast show on Triple J was probably the show X was most hoping to one day hear his stuff on. So the girls having decided, look, this is just too big. We can't. Now we can't. We'll have to let him go. Him and his mate walk past us, and X leans in, taps me on the shoulder, and says, "Really sorry to bother you, Adam. Can I just <laughs> say, <laughs> massive fan?" <laughs> and my daughter's there with her jaw on the ground.
0: Dad's not a goose after all. Had a lovely time. I go, mate. Well,
1: thank you. And yeah, And like, can I just say, on that topic, X, of massive fan. These two young ladies here would love nothing more than a photo. Yeah. And so X poses for a photo and we all blah, 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 and off we go. And there was this great little, you know, realisation in Ellie's eyes of, yeah, okay, I mean, you, you can be pretty embarrassing. You must you must have gone all right back in the day. It was like if a, if a kid had finally, okay, like, I did watch that grand final where you kicked 12 goals, Dad. Okay, I guess you probably did have a bit of an idea what you were doing back in the day. But I was, uh, I'm very thankful to X.
0: Your place, you've chosen the 50-metre arc at the SCG. I'm not even sure what that is, so <laughs> tell me about that, Adam.
1: Uh, you, you understand our beautiful indigenous form of football, Australian football, I AFL? Do. So the AFL has an arc that goes out 50 metres from each goal, a big curved line, to give players a rough idea of how far they are from goal to shoot and you, know, you measure stats of how often the ball's in the defensive 50 and things like that.
0: But you're allowed to shoot either side of it. It's, it's just a help.
1: It's not like a penalty line. There's, no, there's very few rules that attach around that. Strictly these days, a number of defenders have to start within the 50-metre arc, but in the flow of the game, no. But pretty much when the ball's in the opposition's 50, that's when it's exciting and it's so game why is on. it
0: your favourite place on five of my life? Because Tell of, me.
1: Because uh, for a couple of reasons. I, lo- I love the Sydney Swans footy team. It's also a great place. Yeah, AFL's a beautiful game to watch. Uh, it's uh, to watch live. So if you, were, if you were designing a game that was great on TV, but maybe a little bit one-dimensional and boring live, I'm, no, this is only my personal thing, I think rugby league is like that. Beautifully bang, 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 but oh uh, yeah, whatever, a bit for mine. AFL, where the ball can go anywhere from 30 centimetres to 60 metres, anywhere in the 360-degree circle at any moment, is really hard to capture all of the fascination of it on TV. You watch back AFL from the 1960s and it's literally black and white just of just a ball going through the air and coming down and landing and everyone's trying their hardest to make. And you just, it's aerial ping pong, as they say. You just can't. So when you're watching live, you realise, hold it. He's kicked it to him because that guy slipped over, so that guy's free. If we can get it from there to there, we're going to score down the other end of the field about 30 seconds from now. It's just this beautiful, muscular chess game taking place, and the seats that we normally sit in at the SCG are just on that 50-metre arc, so I love watching it from there. But it's also been the scene of uh, my greatest success and greatest failure. Of uh, We used to do a charity event each year on the SCG. The SCG, the Swans are closely aligned with Red Kite, a beautiful charity that raises money for the families of children and young people with cancer, and uh, we'd, ha- we'd have a game on the SCG each year uh, to, you know, celebrate Red Kite. And if it had ever rained during the week, we wouldn't play the game. We'd just have a little shooting for goal competition. So from, I've, I've kicked one through from the 50-metre arc that rolled and rolled and rolled and finally got That's through. That's cheating, mate. It's I good. just had to go through. <laughs> and that in that year, I won the kicking competition, draining one from an impossible angle that if you gave me 100 shots, I'd get two, maybe three. But when it mattered, just put it through. and went running in the rain, dropped <laughs> to the knees, sign of the cross, teammates on top in front of the crowd. And a few years later when it was raining and we had the little five people each shoot off and our team had already won. But the host said to me, look, do you want to have one kick anyway? So I lined up to have it. And I'd only warned my runners out there. I wasn't even planning to kick because there was only five people each. And in the act of kicking, slipped the leg out from underneath me land on my arse and back in the mud at the SCG. It's been replayed on uh, Fox Sports, the back page, several times. Like, just gorgeously total humiliation on that same hollowed patch of turf.
0: I love it. Oh, yeah. What a brilliant story. (laughs) Thank you. Now, uh, uh, we're going to move on to your final choice, and I have been looking forward to this because you have chosen a uh, chess set signed by gary kasparov and yes. i need to say for the person listening that doesn't know who he is mm. he is one of humanity's special ones oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he won the world championship youngest ever at age 22 and then correct me if i'm wrong from 1986 to his retirement there were 228 months and he was number one for two hundred and twenty-five of them. Yeah, he must have taken a holiday for yes. three months.
1: Roger Federer-like stats, and and Kasparov. It's very difficult to compare the game of chess across eras, but there you, you can't argue there's ever been a better chess player. And now, you know Bobby Fischer back in the sixties, hard to measure. Uh, Magnus Carlson, the player today, rated numerically a little bit higher, but has been brought up on computers and all that sort of stuff. Kasparov, when he just before he becomes world champion. In 1985, he played a, a simultaneous demonstration against 32. Oh, it's incredible. Different, the, the world's 32 best chess computers at the time, and just beat them all. One, one Walking
0: them, from one to another yeah, to another. Bang, yeah. bang.
1: And, and, and barely raised a sweat. Because in 1985, chess computers can only play a barely, ba- but he's the guy in 1997 who loses yes. to Deeper Blue. So in the space of twelve years, but that was a
0: timed game. It, to be fair to him, he was under a little bit of pressure, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, and he's, you know, he he panicked a little bit. But you go and and but we've now I've now got an app on my phone that Kasparov could never beat, and no no human being ever will. And wow! The, the best the best chess computers now are beyond what any human being will ever do. They they now inform and make
0: us better as players, but... I need to ask you, what's the theory that it is the number of chess games that can be played?
1: Yeah, that's, so that's sometimes called the Shannon number. That's it. And and, it, and it's it's infinite. Uh, well, 10 to the power of 120, give or take. So about 120 digits Because you long. can move
0: your rook back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I mean, it's...
1: Yeah, and given that the, uh, the, the number of fundamental particles in the entire observable universe, so number of bits of stuff in everything, is a number that's about 83, 84, 85. So there are more chess games on,
0: than there are particles in the universe? By
1: a factor of, for every particle in the universe, there's a billion, 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 billion. So a billion of billions of billions of billions of possible chess games.
0: That makes my brain melt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Get yeah, back yeah. to Kasparov.
1: My, so Gary, uh, so because of the work he's done, he's these days a great advocate for uh both justice, he goes after Trump and Putin very hard all the time, he's fascinating on Twitter, but also because of his experience with losing a deeper blue, he's a world expert now on artificial intelligence, machine learning.
0: But how did you get a sign
1: set? So his theory is that people should interact more with machines than it's, it's not the rise of the robots and all that. He came to Australia to talk to a banking group on exactly that. I was interviewing him and another guy about AI, machine learning, that sort of stuff, and at the end of it as a special treat they laid out a series of tables with some chess boards and Gary played a group of us. similar... You
0: played him chess? (laughs) I played... Mate, Mate, did did you win? Well, look, the
1: the, the result of the match is not the important part of the story. In my life, I've only lost one game of chess to Gary Kasparov. (laughs) Ah, and ah, there's a ah, lot of ah, much ah, better players than me who can't say ah, that. So so best of three, it's still to be decided. It it was so much fun. What was great about it was he's just moving along the six. If he beats us, we all got replaced. He won every game quite comfortably. He said at the end of the night there was one person who knew enough about what they were doing. He found the game interesting. And that wasn't Spencer. It wasn't me. But what was great about it, you'd play, and he would at various stages, he'd get back to your board and he'd stop. And he'd look at it with his hand on his chin, really thinking. Real like thinking quite deeply for a moment, and and he he did that probably twice in my game, and you managed to convince yourself. Well, hold it, I've at oh, least, got him. <laughs> I've at least put him in a position here where he's actually having a dig pretty deep. Nice work, Adam. I asked him afterwards, and he, he uh, I th- I think what he was doing was he was he was just looking at the board, going, "Now I have seen that exact position. Is this?" I think the last time I saw this exact position on the board was nineteen ninety four. Was that the fourth game in my series against that guy? Was that in Leningrad? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was just crawling. Like, because, the fascinating thing about so so at the end, he signed my chess set, and I kept it, and I gave him a copy of my book, and he probably hasn't kept that. And uh, and when we had, we had, we had a beautiful night, lovely guy, but but what I find fascinating about so so for I'm an, an absolute beginner. If I if I could freeze time come back a year later and we'd only move forward a second. So if I had no accountability on my... Fa- I, would just, I would practice tw- chess 12 hours a day. I'd love to be... I'd love to... I'm f- so frustrated for the amount of time I've put into it and how average a chess player I am, but I love it. If two people of the, roughly the same ability playing a game of chess is just gorgeous because it transcends age, race, coaching a chess team at my daughter's public school, the Copacabana checkmates, crushing... I just love it. But if, if two people... Play, if two... Comparative beginners play chess and you got an MRI on you while you do it and they measure your brain scans. Beginners, 80% of it is calculation. If I do that, you do that. If I do it you know, And only 20% is any uh, uh, pattern recognition. Get to grand master level, it's flipped exactly the opposite way. It's only 20% calculation. It's 80% pattern recognition because they've looked at so many Hundreds of thousands of situations this is a famous move, like a famous individual move that Kasparov makes in one of his most famous games, and he he makes this move, and at the time, you know, and then about ten moves later, it becomes clear why that was such a brilliant move. And in the analysis after the game, he he said, uh, with that move, I at the time I didn't know why. I just knew the knight had to go there. I couldn't work out why, but I just I I, I was just compelled to make the move. And the idea that you've seen so many similar situations on other boards that you're just forced, not even knowing why, to just instinctively play that move, and ten moves later it's revealed as transcendently beautiful and brilliant. I love, yeah, yeah, yeah. A a good game of chess between two people of the same ability is one of the most noble... Things two human beings can get about, as far as I'm
0: concerned. I, I just love her this way. I've spent the last two years trying to teach myself chess, and and I I adore it. I, I play it on the phone, but I play it face to face. Do you use the set, or you, is it a special thing in a, in a cabinet?
1: Yeah, no, I've, i I well, because he's he's autographed it on the board, right? And so if you move pieces on it, you're going to scrape away the autograph. Yeah. So I've got the chess set there to show them. I've got I own a few chess sets, right? Uh, and so. Uh, no, that one
0: that one. So that a, one. comes out occasionally just to show people that it goes away. So you coach chess. Listen, mate, now I've got you. I yeah. have to ask because yeah. I've been <laughs> desperate to improve. Ah. What would you advise people in my situation who are trying to improve at chess? Are,
1: are you only just a, a real beginner?
0: Well, I'm at level five on my stupid iPhone mm-hmm. app. I don't know if that's, that's okay. a beginner.
1: You might unfortunately be too far into me to be able to save you. The people who are best to teach at chess are those who know nothing about it, Right. If, if you give me a, a, a kid or an adult who, who, who knows legally the moves the pieces can make and that's all, that's the best point to start because most kids who learn chess learn from mum or dad, let's say dad for the consistency in the, in the sentencing, and dad's terrible. And so terrible dad teaches the kid who, if he practises really hard, she, five years from now, will just be able to beat terrible dad. It's like if you gave me your kid and said, Adam, you're going to become uh, Samantha's tennis coach, Give me two years, I will give you a house tennis player. <laughs> I can't play tennis. <laughs> I don't understand how to roll the weight up through my back leg. and come, uh uh uh. So most people who teach kids, they, they they put all the pieces on the board. They say, this does that, this does that, this does that. Let's have a game. It's like saying with tennis, if I sat little Samantha and I said, okay, you've got forehands, you've got backhands, you've got serves, <laughs> you've got returns, you've got slices, you've got chips, you've got boom. You ready? Here you go. Boom. You idiot, Samantha. That was a kick serve. Why didn't you hit a backhand slice? It makes no sense. So the way to start is remarkably simple. Just with a king and a pawn versus a king, and I'm with king and pawn trying to get that pawn safely to the other end of the board. And we're just going to keep doing that. That's a limited situation where we can both see every possible move that can be made, and then you go like that, and, 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 and then you build it up. And if, if you were teaching a kid to be the best possible chess player, they would not play a game with all the pieces on the board for the first six months.
0: You would just build up, build up, build up. There will be people listening to this podcast who you've transformed. And the other thing to do, if you're on any
1: chess website or you have an app or anything like that, don't play games because you're just reinforcing terrible habits. Go to the feature on that where they solve puzzles. They show you a board and go, what is the best move to make here? A a chess grandmaster, the great Ian Rogers, once told me puzzles and tactics solving like that is like scales for a piano player. It's not the most glamorous part of the job, but you just have to do hours and hours of that to then occasionally play a beautiful symphony.
0: Thank you. Wow. So one of these days, it would be an honour to be beaten by you, but before... We could we...
1: organise that in a couple of
0: minutes, right? I'm backing myself. <laughs> before we say goodbye, I'm going to go to the famous six-trick ah, question. yes. So you can't say Dr Carl. Right. Uh, I'd like to hear... Who you would like to hear on Five of My Life next, a- and why? Who would I like to hear the answers of? I've got a mate, uh,
1: who is a really interesting woman who works in artificial intelligence, which is which is a field that skews disproportionately male, and uh, her name is Dr. Katrina Wallace, mm-hmm. and uh, she runs an organisation called Flamingo. Now I don't know if her stories. About, see, because I, what I find interesting when I listen to your podcast is it's, it is the fact that the person who's being interviewed is someone I know that then makes their uh, references to films and all that interesting. And given Katrina's not someone who's that well known, I don't know if it resonates on that level. She's a fascinating woman you should have a chat with at any time. Uh, Gary Kasparov would be an absolute crack
0: you're only allowed one yeah you're only allowed we'll go with katrina wonderful adam spencer that was just an absolute joy for me thank you for being on five of my life
1: a pleasure mate thank you very much nice prime number five too
0: the five of my life was presented by me nigel marsh producer alex mitchell sound production and theme music by darcy thompson and matt nicholish